back to uh, the Reclaiming Our Patrimony podcast uh, with your hosts, Michael Tuig and Jude Burkett. Um, it's nice to be back. Jude, how are we doing? Hey, Michael. I'm doing great. Yeah, it's great to be back. Yeah. Looking good in your flannel. Oh, well, thank you. All right. So this episode is going to be a little bit of a different episode. Uh, so far, we've been um discussing i guess you could call it topics that have to do with more current events or relatively current events um you know prompted by news articles or um other more modern sort of writings um like last time in our cannibalism episode we talked about um or that was based off, that discussion was based off of a uh, New York Times uh, article that had been written probably about a month ago by now. Um, but this time, for this episode, we decided we're going to do something a little different. Um, this episode is going to be a little bit shorter than the previous ones and will hopefully be a series um, diving into a book. Um, and this is not a modern book. <laughs> this is... At least the book we're going to be discussing first in this series um, is The Constellation of Philosophy by Boethius. Um, so I guess for any anybody in the audience who has never heard of The Constellation of Philosophy before or um, only knows a little bit, maybe has heard the name but doesn't know what it's about, doesn't know who Boethius is, um, Boethius was a late antique um, Roman politician, intellectual, philosopher, theologian, man of letters. Uh, he was a, a little bit of a Renaissance man. Um, he's most famous for his philosophical writings. So his most famous work is the Constellation of Philosophy. Um, he did write a lot of other things, um, several theological tracts. Um, he's also a big translator uh, he knew Greek, which in his time period, so uh, late antique Rome, this is roughly the 5th century when he lived. Um, most Romans didn't know Greek by this point in their history. And he was one of the few educated Romans who was so well educated that he knew Greek. Um, and one fun fact about him is that he undertook a project to um, translate <laughs> all of the famous uh, Greek philosophical works from Greek into Latin. <laughs> Needless to say, he didn't live long enough um, for him to even come close to finishing that. Um, but what he did, he did translate a few. Um, he translated a few works of Neoplatonic philosophy. Um, and he did translate a few of Aristotle's philosophical works, which is highly important, actually, because... Um, his translations are some of the only Latin sources of Aristotle's philosophy that the early Middle Ages had access to until the 12th century when um, Latin philosophers started, or Western philosophers who knew Latin started translating Muslim translations of Aristotle in the 12th century. So 
Boethius kind of provided that link with Aristotle, making sure that people didn't forget about Aristotle for about 600 years. So even in just that regard, he's pretty important. Um, but also in his own lifetime, um, he was a politician um, without, <laughs> without going too much into the history of late antique Rome. Um, by this point in time, Rome was under the control of the Ostrogoths. So King uh, Theodoric was the Ostrogothic king in charge of Rome. And, but he still kind of maintained most of the forms of Roman government that he inherited. So there was still a Senate, there's still councils, there's still all of those Roman offices. They kind of, they didn't have as much power as they once did, but they were still relatively important. And Boethius held a lot of those positions. He was a consul at one point. Um, at one point in his career, he was very much trusted by the king. Um, he was very well regarded, very successful, wealthy. So in other words, for much of his life, he kind of had it all. Until he didn't. Um, and which is the context out of which his book is birthed because at some point in his career, he, and the details, historical details for this are kind of fuzzy. Um, Basically he was implicated in a conspiracy of some of the senators, Roman senators against King Theodoric. Um, It's unclear if he was actually part of the conspiracy if he was just sympathetic to it or if he had nothing to do with it either way a lot of pe- some people accused him of trying to work for the downfall of king theodoric and um <laughs> king theodoric wasn't having any of it um also their religious persuasions didn't help uh boethius was a catholic orthodox christian so he believed he was a trinitarian christian King Theodoric and the Ostrogoths were Arians, so they were, um, in the eyes of Boethius, they would have been heretics. Um, and King Theodoric was also, by this point in time, wary of any sort of opposition from Orthodox Christians who could have been seen as potentially disloyal. So, keeping all that in mind, basically, uh, Boethius was exiled from Rome. He was imprisoned, and after a few years in imprisonment, he was executed. So, he, the trajectory of his life goes from, you know, becoming very successful, very wealthy, having basically anything he could want, and then completely falling from grace, being imprisoned, derided, and then ultimately executed. Um, I guess one final fun fact is that, and I'm surprised most cat, a lot of Catholics aren't aware of this, but Boethius is actually a saint. Um, he's considered a martyr, actually. <laughs> I mean, I didn't, I did not, didn't know he was a. Yeah, yeah. So um, um, you can pray for his intercession, which is interesting. He's considered oh, you, a martyr. Do you know um, what the what he what the what is the patron saint of? By chance i have no idea um i do know that he's a that. local cult in italy so 
I don't know. It's some some Italian city, maybe Pavia or something like that. But anyways, fun fact, he's a saint, so we should properly be calling him Saint Boethius. Um but with that, yep, yeah, so that's just some a little brief historical background. And all that's actually very important for this book, The Constellation of Philosophy, because um and Jude will get into like the structure of the book and we'll get into like what it's even about, generally speaking. But he wrote the Constellation of Philosophy while he was imprisoned. So this is a product of um, his imprisonment. This is basically him reflecting with the knowledge that he's almost certainly going to be executed. So it's important to keep, I mean, that's a pretty important detail to keep in mind while reading this book um, at all. Um, but yeah, Jude, now um, Jude's going to talk about the structure of the book a little bit, just because that also set, sheds some light on how to even read it and understand it. Uh, yeah, so I guess it's sort of got a <clears throat> like a, a monologue or a, like a has a monologue and a dialectic dialogue component. So, um, like lady, so there's the the character lady flaw and Boethius, and essentially she comes when he's you know sick, um, and she's sort of I guess she sort of, <clears throat> it's sort of like a almost Socratic where she she's sort of questioning him um, and trying to draw out like throughout the deeper truths of things. Um, so there's that component. But then there's also the, the poetry as well. So often each book will start with some poetry. I don't think that's true of every book, but um, it'll start with some poetry. And it's operate sort of like how uh, the chorus in Greek tragedies will, it, uh, operates, where it's kind of giving you giving distance from like the, the, you know, the main body of the work, um, giving the reader distance. I think it also said that um, it kind of serves as like a reprieve almost. Who's, you know, like doing the hard philosophical work and then he's, he gets like a reprieve from it with the poetry. Um, and the introduction mentioned how uh, sort of the, the frequency of the poetry decreases as Boethius sort of, is made more well as the book progresses. Their poetry less frequently. Um, so yeah, that's sort of how it, how the book is structured. Um, yeah, I don't know if you have anything you else know, you want to add. It makes total sense, but like poetry acting as reprieve because you know, for the audience out there, if you've ever read any philosophical works, um, especially yeah, it can be more modern. Dark. They get like philosophical works can be horribly dry <laughs> and boring. Yeah. So the fact that um, he kind of intersperses poetry, which is, you know, a lot more pleasurable to read than just you know, big chunks of philosophical text makes it a lot more maybe digestible. Um, yeah. Also the dialogue as well makes it quite, yeah quite a lot easier to read than maybe you know some or something. 
Oh gosh. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> or the Summa. Oh man. If oh, you've yeah. ever read the Summa. Like I love Thomas Aquinas, but reading the Summa is it can be Yes. It can I, be a slot. I gotta say Yeah. It's 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 worse than um the politics or the ethics for sure even yeah but <laughs> so I, I think reading <laughs> I think that's cool to say that like uh, the constellation of philosophy is definitely at least insofar as it's a philosophical work it's definitely easier to read than say like a summa or God forbid, uh, meditations by Descartes. <laughs> you'll get. Can't to say that. I've ever read that, but um, no, you'll get. I to mean, it. it's definitely. It's... You'll hate every minute. <laughs> yeah, um, it's it's similar to the the Platonic dialogues, um, the, the dialogues of Plato. I would say. Um, mm. I think he's heavily influenced by Plato, um, mm. right? So style from but it does have that same sort of like it, when you it reads similar i guess yeah well that would that would probably be a safe assumption because i don't know if you could be educated in the ancient world and without not, <laughs> yeah without having read plato um so that yeah. i think that would probably be a safe assumption um so yeah so that's the structure of the book. So it's kind of, it, it reads kind of like a philosophical tract, but also not really in a lot of ways. It, it also reads, again, as we've been saying, like a dialogue. It's a lot more, um, it's very personal. Um, it is a little bit like a memoir almost. And this ties back with um, his kind of life. Um, because it's very much, he's in the con, he's in the book that he wrote. He's one yeah, of the characters. Right. Like if that just made me, think, if you think about uh, like Aristotle, a lot of he, he's not in his works. So it's mm-hmm. there's yeah, it's it's very impersonal. And Saint Thomas, yeah, mm-hmm. those are both very like looking at the facts or whatever, and just doing philosophy. But this is yeah, like you said, very personal. He's in. He's in his works. You, you kind of learn a little bit about his life almost. Um, yeah. Like what he's been through. Yeah. In fact, I think historians I mean, like, definitely do. Know, know a lot about his life from this book. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> because like he, he does like, and we're going to get into this. The, this episode will be about the first book. Uh, should have checked this beforehand. There's five books that make up the Constellation of Philosophy. And it's, each book is split into, you know, five or six chapters maybe seven um so we're going to be covering the first book and the first book is essentially he lays out his life (laughs) for lady philosophy he to give a brief overview of the first book he's sick um he's imprisoned um he's sick because he's imprisoned and he's you know grieving the fact that he's lost everything. Um, and so it, it is essentially his autobiography. He's imprisoned. He's, un- he's been unjustly ac- accused. He's lost everything. Um, and Lady Philosophy appears and <laughs> essentially asks him, like, 
why are you sad? And then he spends yeah. several chapters going like, uh, do I really need to explain why I'm sad? Okay, well, here are all the reasons I'm sad. I'm imprisoned. I've lost my fortune. Everybody hates me. You know, I, I'm, I'm probably going to get executed. And to top it all off, like, I've just tried to be a good person my whole life. And this is my reward. And these evil people who have put me in the situation in the first place seem to be the ones who are winning. Um, and then that's where it kind of leaves off is Lady Philosophy starting to answer his objections. Um, so I guess without, we, and we're not going to get into like the nitty gritty details of the book. Um, that's for you guys to read the book. <laughs> <laughs> so we're not going to be explaining every single page. Um, but there are a few things that um, we thought we'd draw out. Um, a few like bigger points, um, maybe some of the bigger themes that Boethius at least begins to bring up in the first book that he's going to develop later on. Um, and one of them is one of the big ones. Well, actually, one of the big ones, if not the biggest one, is the idea of free will and providence kind of operating at the same time. Um, and I don't know, dude, would, in, in his position, <laughs> if you were in his position and someone just came up to you and told you, why are you so mad, bro? Like, God's in control of history. That would not be a what satisfying. Would, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, what would be your first uh, reaction? I would be like, I mean, it would be definitely it'd be irritating. Um, it'd be, it's all like, It'd be like the person's kind of like almost belittling it, it would feel like maybe. Like you're circum. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, I mean, like, like you're in his position. You're, you're, you know you're going to die. You've lost your fortune. You've lost, you've lost your good name. You're imprisoned. <laughs> you don't have access to your beloved books. And then someone, you know, actually like starts getting mad at you saying, you shouldn't be mad at all. Why are you upset? Yeah, that would be very, (laughs) would be very upsetting for sure. Like, but then, uh, but then the response to that is, well, but hold on, Jude, that's what we believe as Catholics. Right. Is that God, that God is history, right. Providential control of history. So how do you square those two things? with some difficulty I suppose or maybe not difficulty but the bright understanding of what does it look like for God to be in control I guess like what does that actually mean Mm -hmm. it might not seem like God's like when you're Boethius there you know you 
getting accused and you, you're innocent. You're, I guess, you're presumably innocent, and he gets accused and he's thrown in jail. Mm-hmm. What does God being in control mean? That might be different than uh, like it working out the way we think it should work out for ourselves. Mm. Um, yeah, yeah. No, I, I'm just looking at one quote um, on page 12 where um, he's reflecting on this problem. The, it's, again, fundamentally, how do you square free will, God's providence, and the seeming like success of people who are doing evil things at the expense of people who are trying to be good? And he has this to say, um, which is actually a little bit shocking, but he says it may be part of human weakness to have evil wishes, but it is nothing short of monstrous that God should look on while every criminal is allowed to achieve his purpose against the innocent. So, I mean, he's essentially saying that it's monstrous that God should allow wicked people to prevail over innocent people because again it's very it's very personal it's what's happening to him right now presumably yeah. and presuming that he's a good person and if he's a saint then presumably he was a good person um or at least tried to but the nature of free will like, is it really God letting or is, can you think, I don't know if you can think about it as God letting people like, you know, letting the wicked do evil acts. Cause that kind of makes it seem like God's kind of like, he has his, he had like, he has control of you. He just, he like let, lets you do certain things. So like, mm. He, you know, you're a puppet, and all the strings are tight. You do whatever you want there, but like the rest is still uh, restrained. Uh, sort of seems uh, like. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know if, I guess, in a sense, God lets you do, is letting you do. Evil acts in the in the sense that you like you have free will. To do whatever you want, in a, in a sense. Um, Well, it, I mean, I've never, <laughs> maybe this is good that it's happening right now. I don't know if I've ever sat down and just thought about what free will even means. But, like, when you think about it, there's an all-powerful, omnipotent, omniscient God who created the entire universe. And he's also all good, all justice, you know, goodness, truth, beauty creates a universe that is completely separate from him and that's good and then he creates these creatures called human beings who can somehow 
who have the capacity to choose whatever they want. I, like, I, but God is all good. And, but by definition, if, if we have free will, we can choose that which is not good. So, like, how to, you know. Because so, God only like, creates good. Yeah. Uh, but then, you know, and then it's also the question, like, could God have created a universe of free creatures who didn't commit evil? Is that even possible? Uh, well, I guess I are we are we going to use the uh, this this is the uh, I think it's the Augustinian understanding of evil. Or it's the the absence of good, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, like, if the world was created, if whatever God creates is good, then. Is man like making an absence of good somehow? Like, <laughs> but then how do you like? How do you even make an absence? It, what does that mean? How do you create? Like, how do you take away something? Like, make something become nothing almost. Like, I don't, humans can't do that. Right. Well, like, how do you? How can you choose something that? Yeah, again, like taking that definition, evil as a privation. How can you choose something that, by definition, is not there? <laughs> or like, yeah, yeah. Uh, I. It's a really strange way of putting it, but I don't know. And I, I mean, it, it kind of goes back to the question too of like, not just. Like, how did God do it? But why, why in the first place would God create a universe in which evil was even a possibility? Um, I, I guess, yeah. I mean, it, we understand that God created us to love him, right? Right. And the only way to do, the only way to truly love is if you can uh, be free to not love to reject I guess right well I mean like so it I, I guess evil is like if, if you, if you, held, up a, if you held up a gun to someone's head and said love me or else I mean <laughs> the person is going to say that they love you so that they don't get shot but is that actually love I, I assume not <laughs> why, well why would you have why do you, why do you have to hold up the gun to make them love you if it was well exactly yeah yeah exactly so I mean, if they if they really loved you then they wouldn't you wouldn't have to threaten them unless they didn't love you at which point you know but th- that's where the free freedom comes in like in order for love to be real it has to be a free choice um so like yeah i think i mean like the so, why question it can kind of be boiled down to why is there free will? Why does God allow evil? Ultimately, I think it boils down to because he is love and in order for creatures to actually be capable of love, they need to be able to choose the opposite of that. So I, I, think, I think evil actually then it is a result of free freedom. That's where evil comes from. Or, mm. 
freedom. If God creates right. like everything good, where does evil come from? Mm-hmm. The only like the only thing like I that the only thing I can see that can change is like the, f- the free will that we have. Like to reject God, I guess. But yeah, um, I think yeah, free will exists so we can love God. So, in that case, then, what about the fact that he's still suffering, though? Right. So, and he's also he's, he's also chosen. Not evil. He's 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 a again uh, with the assumption that. He's someone who's been striving to be good. And he's suffering because of it. That doesn't seem very fair. Well, so it's... <clears throat> I think it's... And I, pretty, and I think the... It gets to it later on in the book, but... Mm, yeah. Uh, and for, for context, like... These are, like, the questions are being raised in the first book, but they aren't answered until later on. So... A lot of these answers are just being left kind of vague for a reason. Um, right. I think it's like, I guess, so, you know, he's, he's striving, striving for, he's been a good person, but he's still suffering. It's, I guess it's the question, like, what? what lens do you like what lens are you looking through when you see like what does it mean what does it mean if you read the good life what is it what is the result is that does that mean that you're gonna have like the physical like you know you're gonna have wealth and like a good reputation yeah and all that is that what the good life entails. I, ah, so it's like, it's like a, there's an, a mis, mis, like a disconnect or a misunderstanding, I think. So like, maybe he's, he's, he's done he's everything thinking, right, but it doesn't. Yeah. And I mean, like, well, so yeah, it is, it, it is really easy to fall into that way of thinking. Um, well, so here's what, yeah, in general. <laughs> right. Yeah, like what's the end? Well, she, Lady Philosophy asks him, "What what is the end of man?" I, well, she asks him, "What is what is the true nature of man?" And he's he's like, "Oh, it's a rational animal, <laughs> rational and mortal animal." <laughs> Such a nerdy answer. <laughs> I mean, yeah, <laughs> it might be. I mean, it's probably, it's true, but you're like. Is that, is I mean, that he's a bit of a nerd? Sure, he, you... <laughs> he, uh, I mean, he's the one that tried to. He's going to try to translate all of what was it? All of the all ancient the philosophers. Like, yeah. So. Yeah, that's. Yeah, that's he a had huge maybe. Nerd move. Yeah. You get thrown in prison. We <laughs> <laughs> wonder what his social life was like. Probably. <laughs> Um, <laughs> well, I think at some point he complains about not having access to his library. <laughs> or like, 
Oh, that was, he, says, yeah. he, he says something about his library, like, or maybe it's Lady Philosophy saying, like, you know, you don't need to be in a library to, like, think about philosophy. Something, something like that. Uh, yeah, of course, he has to be in his library. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, but. Well, so here's a little, this is like what I was saying, kind of like, how are you actually look like, what, how are you looking at life? What's the lens? Mm. And like, it, it, here it says, Lady Philosophy says, the purpose of things is that you think the wicked and the criminal have power and happiness. So I guess, mm. what is the end of man? You need to understand that before you, like, before you decide whether or not like i mean if you know what the end of it like if the end of man is having wealth then obviously he's not doing very well off and he's right been doing everything right mm. so clearly the end of man then is is not those things right so i think that's where that's what we're basically trying to get at and even like suffering too is that um like proper like if you have a whatever the end that lady philosophy is talking about if you have that proper understanding of the end that's going to inform the way you view your entire life and you'll be able to find a place for suffering um, and for being unjustly accused as in his case um, yeah. kind of losing everything now kind of switching tax a little bit, but another interesting thing, um, and this is more just of a throwaway line that they kind of include, but it does have, it, it has to do with everything that's been talked about. Um, but Lady Philosophy has this, like, almost seem like two throwaway lines where she says, page eight, the sole cause of their tragic sufferings, um, and this is in reference to other philosophers who were either tortured or killed um, for standing for the truth or, you know, otherwise living good lives. Um, the sole cause of their tragic sufferings was their obvious and con complete contempt of the pursuits of immoral men, which my teaching had instilled in them. It is hardly surprising if we are driven by the blasts of storms when our chief aim on the sea of life is to displease wicked men. And, I find that really kind of interesting because on the face of it, you'd think uh, lady philosophy that that's not true. That you know, <laughs> the point of our lives is not to like piss bad people off <laughs> essentially. <laughs> uh, isn't the point of our lives to like love God and love our neighbor as ourselves. Um, but Kind of as we we were talking about this beforehand, and it, if you think about it in a certain way, it, it does actually make sense because, and it, and it fits like with what Boethius himself is experiencing. He tried to live a good life. He tried to be virtuous. He tried to be a just um, public official. He tried to do things right, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, and he made a lot of enemies, clearly. Um, yeah. But it's not that he, like, went out of his way to piss them off. It's that 
just by the very fact of he, the way that yeah. he was living, he angered them. Um, right, yeah. And I think we talked about that, like, you know, why, well, why is this the case that, you know, the, the, wick, the quote-unquote wicked people are displeased. They're, they're almost like universally, it's almost like a universally true thing that like wick, good people displease the wicked. It's like, why is that? Like, you know, um, like why, well, there's so many martyrs, obviously, like mm-hmm. in the church, like, you know, they're right. good, good people and then who don't really people. do anything. It's like, <laughs> it's not like <laughs> provoking people. Yeah, like the and, but, uh, I don't, like the the Carmelites of company. Just to use one example, like they were just contemplative nuns who happened to live during Revolutionary France. Yeah, like they're contemplative nuns. They're just praying in their convent, and then you know they refuse to um, sign off on the what is it, the Civil Constitution of the Clergy or one of the documents of the French Revolution. They refuse, and during the Reign of Terror, they were guillotined. All sixteen of them, or however many there were, uh, but mm. I mean, it's not like they—they just—they just kind of existed. And well, yeah, well, they—that's the thing. They—they they existed <laughs> in a certain way, and it's a threat mm-hmm. to them. So I, I uh, like objective way of living. There's an objective standard that we're all, I guess, held to, whether we like it or not. But but. The wicked, I guess, sort of, maybe it's deep down they know what they're doing is, is wrong. And so that when they see someone acting how, how, how one ought, that they can't, they can't stand it. They can't. Mm. Because they're kind of, I guess they're failing, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Huh. Or it's like, it's almost no, it's like, um, it's like, just seeing a person who's living the opposite way than you if you know deep down what you're doing is perverted or bad it's it's like the person doesn't even need to say anything for that to be a sort of like condemnation so like i think you know you think of like i'm thinking like the modern lgbtq movement um Mm, how it's moved from just toleration to um affirmation where now, like, we can't, it's not enough that we just tolerate gay marriage or, you know, whatever the new perversion is of the day. Um, it's that we have to say it's good. So it's not just like, it's not just tolerate it, like, oh, okay. Now you have to actively yeah, yeah, promote, for, it. Um, promote it. And that kind of feeds into that whole psychology of like, it must be that, like, when homosexuals see, a healthy, like married couple family. They must be. They must know deep down that like that's good. That's what's actually good. Um, I mean, well, if you think about it, just like for that's like that's against nature, like our nature. So <laughs> it's like <laughs> biology. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So it it definitely stands to reason that there would be something, whether or not they, they would they would never admit it, of course. Mm-hmm. 
Wow. But deep down, I'm sh- yeah. There's something that there has to be a disconnect there yeah. between what yeah. they say and what they actually believe or what they think in reality. Yeah, no, for sure. And and I, maybe it could be, I wonder, would that fall under cognitive dissonance? Potentially. Yeah. Uh, I was like, I was actually just thinking that whether or not, I think what I did. What you hold, when you hold, what you hold, what, when, what, um, when reality and what you believe don't coalesce, there's like, you have a cognitive dissonance. I think, I think that's what it is. So, yeah. Then I think that would would probably fall. Yeah. Yeah. Because like all of nature is screaming to the homosexual that, uh, mm, this is not natural, uh, it's not natural. but it's like a, it's a psychological, intellectual belief. So it's just yes, those two things don't line up, mm-hmm. and that would probably yeah. make somebody mad. <laughs> <laughs> yes, uh, I just I guess the the final thought um, that we had about this was just. Um, if we're to take this as true, and I think it is true after having talked about it, then it would seem to me that to be a good person almost necessarily seems to imply that you're probably going to have enemies and that that's not I mean, it, a bad yeah. thing. Yeah, like in a perfect world, maybe, no, but we don't live in a perfect world, so. Oh, really? <laughs> this isn't a perfect world. <laughs> yeah, I hate to break it to you guys. Reality oh, journey. <laughs> um, but yeah, like, it, you know, uh, like, yeah. like, like, you know, as you're saying, in a perfect world, like, yeah, everybody is going to get along and will each other's good, but that's just not the case. So obviously yeah. that's not to say, like, intentionally go out trying to piss people off. <laughs> <laughs> but at the same well, it's, time, it's like, how you, how you how you do yeah yeah exactly like, if, you're pissing, if, if you're pissing people off just because you're being a good person and just by the very fact that you're existing like that's a, almost a good thing yeah that's almost a it, good it thing. sounds that's, it sounds like it is i guess well yeah i just mean like if, if someone like becomes your enemy because they hate the fact that you give alms and pray and are kind to everybody <laughs> that that almost seems like a very strange form of compliment um yeah it's <laughs> so it's like an affirmation almost. <laughs> it's almost like a, a confirmation of what you're doing is, is actually good like you're doing a good job um yeah well if you yeah we definitely said mentioned With um, some of the, uh, is it Saint Anthony of the Desert? When, mm. like the the he like you know he had demonic attacks, right? Mm-hmm. Like the, the and they're like the they became more severe. I think as he like, 
was like the more the more holy you become, become, the more you're targeted by the demons. Makes sense, kind of this. There's you know the same way like the better yeah. you are, the more people are going to dislike you. Uh, yeah. Oh no, that's a good. So because people can act like demons. <laughs> I mean, because I mean, demons are yeah. just wills and intellects, and we have wills and intellects. So, right. I think so. Maybe, like, maybe it is. I wonder if it's like a. I mean, you're the math guy. What would it be? Like the the more you increase in holiness, direct relationship. The direct relationship. The more like. The more evil people become. are going to hate you. Um, yeah. Which might also be something to consider if you're trying to be a good person and you see that like everybody likes you <laughs> like maybe you gotta try to work a little bit harder about being a good person um yes it's like keep track of no no start collecting data how many people <laughs> hate you no how many people hate me and why do they hate me? and if it's if they hate me for like because i like they hate me for a reason that doesn't make cut sense them off. then yeah. Oh, <laughs> I don't think that's a, that's an example of virtuous behavior, Jude. Even though you might you might do that, but um, <clears throat> hate to break it. We don't need to talk about that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I think this pretty much wraps up book one. It's essentially in ten seconds. It's Boethius complaining about his lot in life. And Lady Philosophy coming in and, and saying, I'm about to explain to you why you shouldn't be complaining about your lot in life. Um, yeah. And that's kind of where it leaves off. So, yeah, this wraps up book one. Um, and hopefully in a couple of weeks or so, I haven't picked out a date yet, but um, we will do a follow-up episode talking about book two. Um, yeah. Putting a poll out at some point, we should. Ah, yes. Yeah, we could we could put a poll out. Um, just see what you guys think about about doing like, you know, doing what we're doing right now, talking about books. You know, if that's something of interest or. Mm. Um, and we could put out some other like topic category for, ideas yeah. and yeah, see what there's the most interest in, like current events, yeah. more historical topics random things like cannibalism and other yeah so that's more terror that stuff yeah um the, uh, i think youtube you can put polls up so we're on youtube by the way um and then also i think spotify as well so hmm. look for yeah, i know you can make you can make YouTube a spotify. Um, survey on spotify so yeah okay we shall do that um but yeah thank you guys for listening and uh yeah, this has been Reclaiming Our Patrimony Podcast. Next time. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing. We're on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts. Also, if you want to help spread the word, leave a five-star review and tell your friends about it. Thank you for listening to Reclaiming Our Patrimony.